In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So, what have we got set up here? Okay, this is an unconsecrated altar set, so you could touch it later if you like. It's a very simple altar set that I purchased from Egypt and made sure it didn't get consecrated, so we could use it for demonstration purposes. Obviously, there are a few things missing, so that's why I've opened the, the, the curtain. Um, the throne of the, of the chalice would have been here for the chalice to sit so that it doesn't tip over. Okay, and there would have obviously been veils under, but just imagine like it's this way, but we're going this way. Yeah. So we're, we're up to page 190, and today we're going to look at the institution narrative. So, as the name suggests, it's a narration of the institution of the Eucharist. Okay, but if we look at our handouts first. Um, this is again from St. Cyril of Jerusalem, 4th century. And uh, if we see what, what we've covered, um, we've, we've looked at the water, washing of the, of the hands, greet one another with a holy kiss in paragraph 2, paragraph 3, lift up your hearts, paragraph 4, we have them with the Lord, paragraph 5, let us give thanks, paragraph 6, it is made and right, paragraph 7, holy, 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 paragraph 8, that's what we're up to now. Next, after sanctifying ourselves by these spiritual songs, we implore the merciful God to send forth His Holy Spirit upon the offerings, that He may make the bread the body of Christ and the wine the blood of Christ. For whatever the Holy Spirit has touched is hallowed, or is made holy, and changed. So we're going to look at that part today as well, the descent of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so let's read the text. What we'll do is we'll read the text, and as we're reading, I'll explain to you what happens. Okay? 190, sorry. So at this point, if you remember at the phrase was incarnate a few pages ago, the priest put one spoonful of incense into the censer. And then the deacon presents the censer to the priest. And the priest, as he says this part, senses his hands three times over the gifts. Okay? You, you would have seen that in the liturgy. Okay? As he's saying that, what, I'll just explain, I'll just show what he's doing and then we'll go back and we'll try look through what's actually happening. Okay? So he's, he, as he's doing that, he says, he, institu he being Christ, institu inst <laughs> instituted for us this great mystery of godliness for being determined to give himself up to death for the life of the world. He wants to continue, but you interrupt and say, we believe. What did he do? He says, he took bread into his holy hands, which are without spot or blemish, blessed and life-giving. As he does that, he says this. He says, he took bread, he removes the dome, either at this part or right before, and places it in the front or on the side. And he takes bread. He holds it with his right, puts it on his left. He took bread into his holy hands, which are without spot or blemish, blessed and life-giving. What's this? There's a circular veil under the oblation. Why? Because if this is a hot oblation and you put it on the, uh, the pattern, there'll be condensation and then you'll get moisture. Yeah? And sometimes when the offering is, is warm and we remove the cloth, we find a little bit of moisture there. Yeah? So the priest um, just wipes in case there's any moisture, kisses it and places it at the back of the altar. Okay? So he says, he took bread into his holy hands, which are without spot or blemish, blessed and life-giving. So in the, at this point, the, the bread is in his, uh, or the oblation is in his left hand. He then places his right hand on top, looks up, and he says, he looked up toward heaven to you, O God, who are his father and master of everyone. And then he says, says like this, and when he had given thanks, he crosses once, the reply, Amen. He blessed it, Amen. He sanctified it. Amen. We believe, we confess, and we glorify you. Then he says, in a long tune, he extends the he, or the of in, in the Coptic avash. He broke it. As he's extending that tune, he will make, so you the, the offering, always the orientation of it is the three holes, it's three and two. The three are on the right. Remember these five holes represent the wounds of Christ. So as he's saying he, he slowly, with his thumb, not his fingernail, causes a bit of a break 
in the bread. Okay? He broke it. And there's a tradition that he'll pause and he'll blow in that gap. Now, that's not in the book. Yeah? But it's, a, it's an oral tradition that's carried over. That's a good question. I, I haven't... Like, there's a lot of... I, 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 and I've, I've asked around and like there's contemplations but there's no real stuff you, yeah but us, that's usually accompanied with those words okay. so the text doesn't really alert us to that so yeah but the, the thing is that the scent of the Holy Spirit comes a bit later so I don't know if it's likely that that has to do with that or it could have been a kiss that eventually became I'm not sure I don't know. Well, that's the thing. We're not like... Because this, is, this could all be contemplation, which is not wrong. It could say this reminds us of this. But in terms of intent, not sure. And that's why there are some priests in some monasteries, very, 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 very few. I've only met one that doesn't do this because there's no record of it in the book. But let's say it's an oral tradition. So he broke it and he, in a third. He doesn't separate it. He just caused a bit of a break, yeah? And then he continues, and gave it to his own saintly disciples and holy apostles, saying, Take, eat of it, all of you, for this is my body. Now, in, the, in this book, it then says that the priest makes a small break at the top. Yeah? But most priests have been handed down to make a break from the top and a break from the bottom. Yeah? When I looked into it, I found that at one stage it was just a third, and then it became this, and then it became both. The purpose of, of this is to just copy exactly what Christ did at the Last Supper. He took bread and he broke. So what does the priest do? He breaks. Some people say that if, if you look at this, it makes like a cross. Yeah? Like, it's hard to see, but it makes a bit of a cross. Yeah? But in the book, at least, it says, break at the top. And take care of you, all of you, for this is my body, which is broken for you and for many. Given for the remission of sins, this do in remembrance of me. And he places it back in the pattern. Okay? Then, he places his hand upon the rim of the chalice and says, Likewise, also the cup after supper, he mixed it with wine and water. And when he had given thanks, he crosses, Amen. He blessed it, Amen. And he sanctified it, Amen. Again, we believe, we confess, and we glorify So the, uh, the, the split comes in the fraction later. Yeah. So later in the fraction, th there's actually two fractions. One fraction, one way of doing the fraction is you completely separate. The other way is that you make the breaks without separating. So there are two options. Yeah, so good question. So if there's more than one priest, there's one priest who officiates, the parts that he has to do, choose the lamb, and then usually do the Pauline circuit, like 99% of the time. And then, um, the only time he wouldn't is if he's physically unable to, but that's what he usually does. And then he will um, uh, do the institution until the descent of the Holy Spirit, and he'll come back at the fraction until the end. If it's a bishop who's praying with priests, the bishop has to do all of that, and any other time that a blessing is invoked. So the, pr the priest will never bless the people in the presence of the bishop. So even if the priest, it's a priest's turn to pray the prayer of the reconciliation, he'll wait for the bishop to say, let us pray, send the full prayer, the bishop will cross the people, peace be with you all and with your spirit, and then the priest will continue. And then the, the, the priest will hold the rim of the chalice and he'll go, he tasted. And again, there's the tradition of blowing into the chalice and gave it to his own saintly disciples and holy apostles saying, and he lifts up the chalice and moves it in the sign of the cross. Take drink of this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many to be given for the remission of sins. This do in remembrance of me. So in the sign of the cross. Yeah. And then the people replied, this is also true, amen. And then he says, for every time you eat of this bread, and he points at the bread, and every time you drink of this cup, pointing at the cup, you proclaim my death, confess my resurrection, and remember me till I come. Okay? Let's go back and look at each of these parts the sensing of the hands 
reminds us of purification, so purifying his hands, and also reminds us, some people say, reminds us of the spices and the, uh, the, the perfumes that were placed on the body of Christ at his burial by Joseph and Nicodemus. Okay, So that reminds us of that. Let's have a look at page, the second page, yeah. Okay. So by Father Athanasius Iskander, who's a, a priest in Canada, who's written a nice commentary in the liturgy. He says, In the act of taking bread into his holy hands, the Lord is symbolically taking his own life into his hands. In John chapter 10, No man takes it from me, I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it away. In recounting and repeating this gesture, the church reenacts Christ's self-gift. In the action of the priest taking the bread into his hands, as he recounts this, the self-giving of Christ is extended to the present community. So what's, what's he trying to say here? The Eucharist and the death of Christ are connected. Look at the first phrase, first paragraph. He instituted for us this great mystery of godliness. What's the mystery? The Eucharist. So it's a mystery. Yeah? And then look what he says straight away. For being determined to give himself up for the life of the world, he took bread. So he says he, he done this mystery for us. And then he t immediately the priest talks about the death of Christ. So the participation in the Eucharist is a participation in the death of Christ. Remember when Christ says to his disciples, are you able to drink of the cup that I would drink? He's talking about the Eucharist, but he's also talking about his death. So every time we come to communion, we're sharing in the death of Christ. Yeah. Um, one of the monks at St. Macarius Monastery in the beginning of the year, um, when we went, were, was telling us that whenever we go through a tough time, whenever we have to share in the death of Christ and give up, uh, deny ourselves, deny our ego, we have to remember, like, whenever we say carry your cross, it's always said in a negative context, carry your cross, right? He says, since when is the cross a negative thing, yeah? What he's trying to say is, relate it to when Christ says, are you able to drink of the cup, yeah? When you think of a cup at a banquet, when someone says share a cup, it's a joyful thing. Yeah? So it's his cup. So we're sharing, like Christ is saying, take from my cup, share the cup. So it's a joyful sharing. So he really flipped for us the whole understanding of carrying your cross, sharing in the sufferings of Christ, from being like this thing that you say in a negative tone to something that is said in a hopeful and joyful tone, which is you're sharing in the cup of Christ, but it's joyful because it's his cup. Imagine at a wedding, at a joyful celebration, and he says, would you like a drink from my cup? It's a joyful thing. Yeah? That's what Father Athanasius is trying to say here. St. Cyril of Jerusalem. When the Master himself has declared and said of the bread, this is my body, who will still dare to doubt? When he is himself our warranty saying, this is my blood, who will ever waver and say it is not his blood? So emphasizing that from the beginning, from the, the way that the, the church has read Scripture is that, or the Gospels, is that when Christ says, it is my body, it, my body, it is his body. And when he says, it is my blood, it is his blood. It's not symbolic. Do not think of the elements as mere bread and wine. They are, according to the Lord's declaration, body and blood. Though the perception suggests the contrary, let faith be your stay. Instead of judging the matter by taste, let faith give you an unwavering confidence that you have been privileged to receive the body and the blood of Christ. Ambrose of Milan, what does the apostle say to you? As often as we receive, we proclaim the death of the Lord. St. Paul says this. If his death, then we proclaim the forgiveness of sins. If as often as blood is shed, it is shed for the forgiveness of sins. I always ought, I ought always to receive him that he may also always forgive me my sins. I who sin always should have a medicine always. So what's he saying? He's saying that look at the Eucharist as the medicine. So I shouldn't have the approach of, I'll approach communion when I'm not sinning. No, if you're sinning, approach communion because it is the medicine. We're going to talk about worthiness in a second. Cyril of Alexandria, St. Cyril of Alexandria. Christ said, indicate bread and wine. This is my body and this is my blood. In order that you might not judge what you see to be a mere figure. The offerings by the hidden power of God Almighty are changed into Christ's body and blood. And by receiving these, we come to share in the life-giving and sanctifying efficacy of Christ. St. Cyprian says something nice. The Eucharist takes its activity and power from the imitation of the priest of Christ. Because the priest 
imitates what Christ did. If you open the Gospels, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke, he gave to his disciples. That's what we do in the liturgy. He takes bread, he gives thanks, he breaks, he gives. He's copying Christ. Christ, if the priest, St. Cyprian says, if the priest does not imitate Christ in his actions, in the liturgy, Christ will not be present in the Eucharist, and the Eucharist will not be the sacrifice. So when he says, does not imitate, he's not talking about the priest's personal standing with God. I think we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, the efficacy of the sacraments has nothing to do with the priest's personal spiritual life. Two questions. One, we also say he's sanctified, so he made a whole. Yes. Okay. And again, the priest doesn't do that. The priest is just serving that function. Yeah, so the priest copies Christ and makes what's, in, what's invisible visible. Yeah? But as we'll read now, we consider that when we are in the liturgy, we are actually at the Last Supper. So, we are pre- so when, when the priest says, take, eat, we're hearing the priest say this, but it is Christ who is saying to all of us, take, eat. Yeah? Second question is, we believe this is truly the body and blood of Christ. It's any form of symbolism. No, yeah. Um, one criticism we face externally as Catholics is, well, how come that's taken literally and other parts are not in the Bible? For example, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Yeah. Yep. Um, so we don't take that literally. How come in this case we've taken it literally and other cases we don't? Very nice. So we, we, can, we can't look at the Bible as a textbook and apply like a rule and say this is how you approach this text, right? The Bible is a living, uh, a, a living book. It's not just words on a page. It's life, as God says. His words are life. And we have to see how did the church read the Bible throughout the ages, yeah? Because who put the New Testament together? The church. What were they doing before the Gospels were written? Right? What were they doing for those first few decades? They were doing this. What were they believing? They were believing this. What witnesses do we have from this? We have witness from the Apostolic Fathers from the early centuries, and we looked at one last, last um, week. And amongst many of the fathers that say clearly that we have always considered this as the real body and the real blood. And even the two quotes that we read, he's responding to the people that say, oh, it's just symbolism. So we've accepted, I guess, that the church's interpretation of certain aspects of the Bible determines whether we take it metaphorically or whether we take it. Yes, yeah. And the churches, not in individuals, the churches. Even amongst the fathers, there's a variety of voices. Yeah. But we look at the, the unified voice, the church. Then if we turn the page, St. John Chrysostom. Yeah, this is nice. When the words say, this is my body, be convinced of it and believe it, and look at it with the eyes of the mind. For Christ did not give us something tangible, but even in his tangible things, all is intellectual. This is a nice part. How many now say, I wish I could see his shape? So how many people said, I wish I could see Christ? His appearance, his garments, his sandals. Only look, you see him, you touch him, you eat him. Yeah, so if if we were to seriously consider this, you know, like, well, everyone wants to go to Jerusalem, right? Because that's where Christ walked, but he also walked here. Yeah, this is no less. Next uh, quote, Saint John Chrysostom. Oh, actually, you could read that because of time. All right, then he, the priest says, "Do this in remembrance of me." Now, some Christian traditions will take this "do this in remembrance of me" as a symbolic remembrance. Yeah? But as we, we saw, we know from the beginning that the church, the apostles, they practice this not as a symbolic resemblance, but as the real body and blood of Christ, as Christ said. Now, when you look at the Greek for do this, it's what's called a present imperative active verb. What does that mean? In these two po- dot points, it means to continually, habitually follow this command. The present imperative is often a call to a long-term commitment and calls for the attitude or action to be one's continual way of life. These actions are not suggestions. So if you look at the way that the Greek is, it's an imperative, which means it's not a suggestion, but it's a command. To make each attitude or action our habitual practice. Another imperative is when Christ says, do not be anxious. He's not saying, it's not a suggestion. If you actually look at it, it's not... Do not be anxious. It's actually a command. Do not be anxious. Yeah? Same thing. Do this in remembrance of me. Father Gregorius from the Theological College, who's teaching a unit on the Eucharist at the moment, lovely unit, um, he says, In the Eucharist, the past, 
the present and the future are united in one moment or a twinkling of an eye. It is with this meaning that we understand and celebrate the remembrance of Christ. We live in the remembrance of His life, His coming and His salvation. Okay. Uh, are we going for time? Alright, very good. Then, if we go to page 195. Okay. After the priest says, For every time you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim my death, confess my resurrection, and remember me till I come. What did the people reply? Amen, amen, amen. Your death, O Lord, we proclaim. Your holy resurrection and ascension to the heavens we confess. We praise you, we bless you, we thank you, O Lord, and we entreat you, O God. The priest then says, Therefore, as we also commemorate his holy passion, his resurrection from the dead. So in the liturgy of St. Gregory, he'll say, Your passion. But he's addressing Christ. Here we're addressing the Father. So, therefore, as we also commemorate his, being Christ's, holy passion, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to the heavens, his sitting at your right hand, O Father, and his second coming from the heavens, awesome and full of glory. We offer unto you your gifts from what is yours. So these gifts are offered for everything, and he points, concerning everything and in everything. So we're offering these gifts. This is, comes from the very beginning. Remember when we spoke about the concept of offer, offering. Okay? The deacon then says something very interesting. Worship God in fear and trembling. So when you hear the words of the deacon saying, something significant is about to happen. He's used the word fear and trembling. Then the people worship and say, We praise you, we bless you, we serve you, we worship you. The priest, kneeling with his hands extended, says what? An inaudible prayer. And says, And we ask you, O Lord our God, we your sinful and unworthy servants, worship you by the pleasure of your goodness, that your Holy Spirit may descend, and he points at himself, upon us, and then points at the gifts, and upon these gifts set forth, and do what? And purify them, change them, and manifest them as a sanctification of your saints. Okay? This part we call the descent of the Holy Spirit, or the epiclesis, epiclesis of the Holy Spirit. After that point, so the priest has prayed for the Holy Spirit to come upon us and upon these gifts. That's why the language used is, worship God in fear and trembling. Could this be the holiest part of the... Like, not taking into We'll get to that in a microsecond. And then, then the deacon says what? Let us attend. Amen. So what does it mean by let us attend? Let us be attentive. Yeah. Now when does the deacon say that? So far when has he said it? In the, in the creed? Offer, offer in order. Let us attend. Let us attend for what? The anaphora. The Lord be with you all. Let us attend before holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then now, let us attend. But he said, worship God in fear and trembling. Let us attend. Like, this is significant. Like... Focus, yeah? What happens? The priest raises his head, crosses the bread three times quickly, and this bread he makes into his holy body, and then kneels again and says inaudibly, Our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, given for the remission of sins and eternal life to those who partake of him. And the people reply, I believe. What do they believe? They believe that this bread is becoming his holy body. Then the, the priest raises, stands up, and says, and this cup crosses three times very quickly. Also, the precious blood of his new covenant. The people reply, again, I believe. And inaudibly, the priest says, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, given for the remission of sins and eternal life to those who partake of him. And the people reply, Lord, have mercy three times. Okay. What's happening here? This is the descent of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descends upon what? Upon us and the gifts. To do what? To look, yeah, and just let's use the words in the liturgy. We're not going to make things up. Just look at the words in the liturgy. Purify, change, manifest in the sanctification of your saints. Yeah? So what's happening to the bread and wine is also happening to us. So this is where we get a few questions like, is this where the bread becomes the body? For a lot of people, they say yes. Yeah? Recently, some people have done more comparison of the three liturgies say we can't pinpoint it in the Coptic tradition because earlier in the liturgy the priest says to Christ show your face upon this bread and upon this cup which we have set upon this your priestly table bless them sanctify them and change them so what happens so 
a lot of people will consider this to be the point. But some people would say, we offer bread and wine, we receive the body and blood of Christ. What happens in the middle? Let's leave it a mystery. Let's not turn it, let's not try dissect everything. Yeah? Because then we could get ourselves in a few problems. Yeah? So for example, the Catholic Church at one stage started teaching doctrine, or if it still does, of transubstantiation, which means that bread, part, the substance of bread, the bread particles become body particles. Now we never, why did they do that? Because the Protestants started asking questions. How does this happen? The, so the Catholic Church started answering questions that aren't to be asked. And, and, yeah, and, and they looked into what we call a scientific or scholastic way. Now, let's just look at our liturgical text. What word do we use? Change. So what happens? Bread changes into body. How? It's a mystery. But, like, we're not going to subject Christ and his mystery and his sacraments and his work in the church to the same standard that we subject science. Like, we could ask science, how does this happen? What's the formula? When? In what way? We're not going to subject the mystery to that. The same with baptism. Does the person die and rise with Christ? Yes, but he's just put in water. Does husband and wife become one? Yes, but you could see two people walking in, two people walking out. How? It's a mystery. Yeah? It's like we're trying to put a human understanding to God's mystery. Yeah. And so that's why, like, and, but the majority of the opinion is, and we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, that it happens at the descent of the Holy Spirit. But the descent of the Holy Spirit came in around the 4th century when there was a lot of talk. It was a, a ecumenical council and um, people were um, teaching heresy about the Holy Spirit. So the church to really teach the right faith included this part of the liturgy. Yeah? But what's beautiful here is that the Holy Spirit is descending upon who? Us as well. It's a very significant part of the liturgy. Is it, like Mary was asking, is it the holiest part? P- personally, I don't like... I don't know if we could say one part is holier than the other. The whole liturgy is holy. Because we're in God's presence. But you could say that it's a part that the church... The, yeah, the, the text tells us, worship God in fear and trembling. Yeah? Um, be attentive. Let us attend. Yeah? So, when we, when we think of sanctification, what does sanctification mean? San- sanctification means... Something to make holy or to set apart, right? So, for example, uh, this bread is set apart. It's different to other bread. Holy means other. Other to us. It belongs to God. Yeah. So, manifest us as other, sanctify us, and the same as the bread. The bread and wine. Manifest them as a sanctification of your saints. That's a good question. I never looked at your saints. Well, maybe we could look at it like this. Later in the liturgy, the priest says, the holies are for the holy. The holies are for the holy. And why, are we, why does he call us holy? Because we have been sanctified by the descent of the Holy Spirit. So maybe it's connected to that. Let's try it. Where's Horha? Yeah. Yeah. It's like the English and the Arabic match up. Yeah. That's good Arabic, Rob, by the way. Yeah. So manifest them as a sanctification of your saints. Has it got to do with the holies or for the holy? Possibly. Let me ask someone else as well so that I don't make anything up. Because that's always dangerous. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, it might be a connection to the holies of the holies, but let me see if someone's written something about that part in, in particular. Yeah, Sense of action. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let, let me look into that one for next week, just so we get an accurate response. But thanks for that. That's good. Okay. If we look at our quote sheet. Father Alexander Schmemann has a nice uh, quote here. I'm just going to go to the second paragraph. All attempts to explain what happens in the Eucharist in terms of substance and accidents, the Western doctrine of transubstantiation, unfortunately taught sometimes as an orthodox one, or in terms of time, the moment of transformation, 
are inadequate and futile precisely because they apply to the Eucharist the categories of this world, while its very essence is in transcending these categories, in introducing us into the dimensions and reality of the new age. So we're subjecting the mystery to our terms. This, the transformation, he says, does not happen because of some strange, miraculous power left by Christ with some people, priests, and who therefore can perform this miracle by virtue of their power. But because we, the church, are accepted where he has entered, and being accepted, we eat and drink at his table in his kingdom. As he said, since the kingdom is he himself, the divine life, communicated to us at this heavenly banquet, we receive him as the new food for our new life. It's a beautiful expression, heavenly banquet that we use for the, the, the liturgy. The mystery of the Eucharistic transformation is thus the mystery of the church itself, of her belonging to the new age and to the new life in the Holy Spirit. Father Lev Gillet, who sometimes goes by the title a monk of the Eastern Church, says something very nice. There is one other very important point to note. The priest requests to send down the Holy Spirit upon us and upon these gifts. He does not ask that the Spirit come first upon the gifts, but that He come in the first instance upon us. This is the moment of Pentecost in the Eucharistic liturgy. The Spirit descends into our hearts before He descends upon the material elements on bread and wine, the objects of offering and consecration. Do we truly perceive the significance of this inner, immaterial Pentecost? Do we in this moment truly experience the presence and power of the Spirit given to us? So, there are a couple of nice quotes on the Epiclesis. For time, let's go straight into it. Okay? After that has finished, the priest will cover the chalice with a veil, pick up the two veils that he had in his hands, and now pray the litanies. Okay? These are called the seven short litanies. Okay? It's a very Coptic thing to cover the veils with his hands. I've always asked, why does that happen? I haven't, I haven't received a convincing answer, but one answer that is nice is it re- reminds us of the angels who cover their hands, their feet, their faces, their feet and their, and their, and their bodies. Because yeah. even when they pass like, the prayer on to the next priest, what they pass the, they, the Yeah. It's a, whenever they're praying and they're not touching the gifts, they, they're holding a veil. Yeah. So then we get to the seven litanies. Before, but before the actual first litany where it says, Remember, O Lord, the peace of the church. He says something nice. He says, Make us worthy. Make us all worthy, our master, to partake of your holies. Your holies being the body and the blood. Unto the purification of our souls, bodies and our spirits. So the body and the blood will purify our souls, our bodies and our spirits. That we may become, the church, may become one body and one spirit. Why? Because we are the body of Christ. We partook of the same body. Okay? Wherever we are in the world, whatever time we are in, when we partake of the body and the blood of Christ, we live what the church is supposed to be, the one body of Christ. Yeah? That we may become one body and one spirit and may have a share in an inheritance with all the saints who have pleased us since the beginning. And then the litany that follows is about the church because emphasizing that we are one, the church is the body of Christ. We are one. Yeah? But before we look at the litany, the first sentence Make us all worthy, our Master, to partake of your holies. Let's use this as a chance to talk about worthiness. Yeah? In the table there, I've highlighted everywhere that the priest mentions worthiness. Because many times people say, I'm not going to have communion because I'm not worthy. Yeah? Well, let's see what the liturgy, gets, liturgy says. So we're answering that question from the liturgical text in front of us, which is very handy. Good place to go when you want to answer a question is what does our liturgical text say? Got the Bible, got the church fathers, and what does our liturgy say? What does the baptism praise say? What does the funeral praise say, for example, if you're looking at what happens to children who die? Yeah? What does it say? Look at the funeral prayer for children. Yeah? See what it says. Make us all worthy. Sorry? Ah, oh, sorry. No, 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 no. no. Uh, sorry, the only reason that came up is because someone was showing me that la- last week. Okay. Prayer of preparation. You, O Lord, know my unworthiness and unpreparedness and my lack of meekness for this your holy service. So, holy, not hold, holy service. So from the beginning, the priest is saying, 
I'm unworthy. Grant to me that I may find grace and mercy at this hour and send to me strength from on high. Very clearly from the beginning, he sets the scene. Then the prayer after preparation. You have called us, your lowly and unworthy servants, to be servants of your holy altar. O our Master, you make us worthy in the power of your Holy Spirit. Third uh, instance, in the prayer of the veil, which is said after the gospel privately by the priest. We ask you, our Master, turn us not back when we put our hands on this awesome, awesome is full of awe, and bloodless sacrifice. For we put no trust in our righteousness, but in your mercy, whereby you have given life to our race. Emphasizing that we are not worthy and we're not trusting in us being good people. No, we're trusting in his mercy. Pray of reconciliation and make us all worthy, our Master, to greet one another with a holy kiss. Make us worthy. Seven short lineages right now. Make us all worthy, our Master, to partake of your hollies. The preface to the fraction that we're going to look at next week. For he has made us worthy now to stand in this holy place. The private prayer of communion of the priest says, Make us worthy without falling into condemnation to partake of your holy body and your precious blood. So, is anyone worthy? No. What happens? We are made worthy. Right? If you look, just if you turn the page one back. Ava Theonas, okay, Desert Father, says, We should not suspend ourselves from the Lord's communion because we realize that we're sinners. Rather, more and more, we should hasten to it with eagerness for healing of soul and purification of spirit, but with such humility and faith that we judge ourselves unworthy to receive so great a favor and seek it rather as a remedy for our wounds. This emphasizes the church's understanding that the church is a hospital, Christ is the physician, the Eucharist is the medicine. And um, as one, I think St. Ignatius says, the Eucharist is the medicine of immortality. We eat it, his body and his blood, and we live forever. Yeah? So that's why if someone says that I'm not going to have communion because I'm a sinner, it could actually be pride. Why? Because it, it, that person could be thinking, when I stop being a sinner, I will be ready. So when I make myself worthy, I will then partake. That's pride. Because it's about me. I'm the one who's going to be, make myself good. Yeah. So what do we need to do? What are then the, con- the conditions for confession? confession? Confessing that we're sinners and unworthy. Not confession. We don't have to practice the sacrament of confession every single time we have communion. We should be living a repentant life and participating regularly in the sacrament of confession and repentance. But I don't have to say, I'm going to have communion on Sunday, I need to confess on Saturday. Right? There's also the absolution that said in confession is said in Vespers, in Matins, and during the liturgy as well. So it's not every, some people think I have to confess before every liturgy. No, I should be living a repentant life, living a life where I'm regularly practicing the sacrament of confession, but acknowledging every time that I approach the chalice that I am a sinner and I'm unworthy. Second, faith and belief as evident in the responses. The responses in the liturgy all say, I believe. So I need to believe what's happening in the liturgy. Third, the descent of the Holy Spirit makes us worthy. Okay? Worthiness was interpreted by many as true repentance and preparation of the body and spirit. A 14th century author explains the meaning of worthiness as true faith in the body and the blood of Christ, love and peace with all, as said in the prayer of reconciliation, baptism, you have to be baptized to receive the Eucharist, and living a life life of repentance and confession. The key thing is, God makes us worthy. When in doubt, ask your confession, Father. Don't decide not to have communion on your own. When in doubt, ask your confession, Father. In, with, in today's world, it's very easy to reach your confession, Father, via text. Okay. Father Gregorius says something nice. We must go to the altar with faith and preparation and partake of the Eucharist. Whoever says to you, do not go to the altar because you are a sinner, is like one who says to you, don't go to the doctor because you are ill, says one of the fathers of the Coptic Church. Whoever says, I do not want the Eucharist with the reason that he is a sinner and not worthy, is like one who is ill who does not want to take the medicine till they receive the healing. This is the sin of pride, which makes one not seek healing as he may think that he can give himself the healing, says another Coptic writer. The Eucharist is our healing. Therefore, we must not distance ourselves from the altar, but we must not approach without respect and physical and spiritual preparation as well. As the fathers were opposed to false piety, they were also opposed to recklessness. Preparation comes from us. Our job is to prepare. 
Worthiness is from the Holy Spirit. So what's our job? Prepare. How do we do that? Physically, we don't eat from the night before. We make sure that we approach like physically presentable. Yeah. We practice the sacrament of confession and repentance. So we're living that repentant life regularly. And we should be engaged in some form of preparation the night before and the morning of. At a basic level, a bit more prayer the night before. We could do the praise before communion. A bit more time in, in, in quiet meditation. Obviously avoiding being out late the night before. Just setting the scene for the next morning. Yeah. St. John Chrysostom says something beautiful. Wow. But you will say to me, I am a sinner. I cannot come. Then if you're a sinner, come that you may cease to be one. Easy. Tell me, who is there among men without sin? Don't you know that those who are close to the altar are wrapped in sins? For they are clothed with flesh and fold in the body. And the rest we read a couple of weeks ago. John Cashin says, We should not, however, suspend ourselves from the Lord's communion because we realize that we're sinners. Rather, more and more, we should hasten to it with eagerness for healing of soul and purification of spirit, but with such humility and faith that we judge ourselves unworthy to receive so great a favor and seek it rather as a remedy for our wounds. It is far better to receive the sacrament as our remedy for our ills on every Lord's day. With that humility of heart, whereby we believe and confess that we can never worthily come to those sacred mysteries, than to be carried away by a vain belief that we are worthy to partake of them at least after a year. But there came a time where people just weren't having communion for a long time. Yeah. Um, this is nice. Stephen the Recluse. When going to the Holy Mysteries, go with simplicity of heart, in full faith that you will receive the Lord within yourself, and with the proper reverence towards this. What your state of mind should be after this, leave it to the Lord Himself. Many desire ahead of time to receive this or that from Holy Communion, and then, not seeing what they wanted, they were troubled, and even the faith in the power of the mystery is shaken. The fault lies not with the mystery, but with superficial assumptions. So he's trying to tell us to take a posture of humility. Come and say, God, it's about you. It's not about what I think. Do not promise yourself anything, he says. Leave everything to the Lord, asking a single mercy from him to strengthen you in every kind of good so that you will be acceptable to him. The fruit of communion most often has a taste of sweet peace in the heart. Sometimes it brings enlightenment to thought an inspiration to one's devotion to the Lord. Sometimes almost nothing is apparent. But afterward, in one's affairs, there is noted a great strength and steadfastness in the diligence one has promised. That's why it's nice, I wish there was a formal way we could do this, that after the liturgy, we don't just, like a bona throws the water, and then off to the noise. That could be nice if... I don't know how this is possible, but it would be nice if people could like just sit still for a bit, just take it in, and then go and get the, the bread, and then go outside, yeah? Not just, just feel like it's very rushed, yeah? But, because like, the liturgy, like, like after, sometimes, do you feel tired sometimes after liturgy? Yeah? Because you're concentrating, okay? There's a lot happening, yeah? And sometimes I think it's nice then just to, to sit in God's presence for a little bit, but I don't know practically... It's easier for for you, I think, because you don't have to go straight away to the back. I have a question of one. Yeah. Sometimes in extreme cases, uh, one spiritual father may determine that the appropriate remedy is for one to refrain from the Eucharist. If well, one is a... Yeah. But if one is approaching recklessly yeah. and one is approaching with pride and the spiritual father feels that through discernment and prayer that that person needs to withdraw from communion for a while 
then he may think that's part of the healing. But from like, I remember one um, very respected elder in the church, elder um, bishop, was saying that and it, with caution, like this is not something that you hand out and say, hey, don't have communion. It's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. But there are certain things in the church, if people um, engage in certain things, they may not be allowed communion for a certain period of time. To give them a time to, for repentance and reflection. Yeah, that's the general policy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, as a form of just like sometimes, like so it's, really an extreme case. it's extreme cases, but it's seen again for the ultimate goal of remedy of healing. Like you, ne- you need to stay stay away for a little bit to appreciate what's happening. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Saint Cyril of Alexandria says, "The poison of pride is swelling up in you." Turn to the Eucharist, and that bread, which is your God, humbling and disguising himself, will teach you humility. So if you're proud, just look at the Eucharist and see that God, King of kings and Lord of lords, is disguising himself in bread and wine. If the fever of selfish greed rages in you, feed on this bread, and you will learn generosity. If the cold wind of coveting withers you, hasten to the bread of angels, and charity will come to blossom in your heart. If you feel the itch of intemperance, Nourish yourself with the flesh and blood of Christ, who practiced heroic self-control during his earthly life, and you will become temperate. If you are lazy and sluggish about spiritual things, strengthen yourself with this heavenly food, and you will grow fervent. Lastly, if you feel scorched by the fever of impurity, go to the banquet of the angels, and the spotless flesh of Christ will make you pure and chaste. That's beautiful. Uh, That's one of those things which is very nice to read the night before or the morning of communion. Yeah? All right, um, you could read the rest. Okay. So then, I, I won't go through all the litanies, but I'll, like, I'll just summarize them. So there's, there's the litany for the peace of the one only Holy Catholic Apostolic Church, and the deacon replies to every litany asking you to pray. Pray for the peace of the one Holy Catholic. So what are you supposed to do? Actually pray for the church. He then, uh, the, the priest then prays for the patriarch and the bishop and then you also pray he then um, those who rightly hand the word of truth for them the orthodox hegemons priests and deacons then the next one the servants and all who are in virginity and the purity of your faithful people remember Lord to have mercy upon us then the salvation of this your holy place then the air of the heaven the fruits of the earth the rising of the waters then remember our Lord those who have brought unto you these gifts those on whose behalf they have been brought and those by whom they have been brought Give them all the heavenly reward. Okay? Then we get to the commemoration of the saints and the commemoration of those who have departed. All right. Why do we pray? I want to use this opportunity to discuss why we pray for those who have died. Yeah? Why do we pray for those who have died? Because who do we remember? In the commemoration of the saints, we remember the saints, certain saints of the church, and then p- the priest will remember out loud anyone, an Orthodox Christian who has departed, and one may hand their name on a piece of paper, and the priest will pray for them. Okay, why? And some people are asking, how come these saints are in the commemoration of the saints and not others? Well, these are all monastic saints, so some people reckon that this specific commemoration came from a, a text, a manuscript that was in a monastery. But apparently, the oldest liturgies, the saints that were remembered were two. St. Mary and St. John the Baptist. And that's it. Okay, but what about praying for the departed? Let's finish today off with that. Okay? Father Alexander Schmemann, now we stand before the gift in the fullness of joy of God's presence and we prepare ourselves for the last act of the divine liturgy, the acceptance of these gifts in communion. There remains, however, one last and necessary act, intercession. Christ eternally intercedes what do you have next on your page for the whole world he himself is that intercessor and mediation to partake of him or actually sorry yeah yeah to partake of him necessarily means that we also are filled with the same love and accept as his church his ministry and intercession the intercession watch this embraces the whole creation 
Standing before the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, we first commemorate the Mother of God, St. John the Baptist, the Apostles, the Martyrs and the Saints, the innumerable witnesses of the new life in Christ. The church is, watch this, the church is not divided into two parts, the heavenly and the earthly. We don't have two churches, we have one church. She is the one body and whatever she does, she does on behalf of the whole body and for the whole body. Yes, we have one church and we refer to those on earth as the church militant, struggling still, and those in heaven, the church victorious, but it's one church. The act of intercession thus is not only an act of expiation, it is also a glorification of God, wonderful in His saints and communication with the saints. We begin our prayers of intercession by mentioning the Mother of God and the saints because the presence of Christ is also their presence. And the Eucharist is the supreme revelation of the communion of saints. Next paragraph. The Eucharist transcends the hopeless difference between the living and the dead because it transcends the limits between this age and the age to come. We're beyond time. On the one hand, we all are dead and our life is hidden with God, with Christ in God. St. Paul in Colossians. Yet, on the other hand, we all live because Christ's life has been granted to us in the church. The departed members of the church are not mere objects of our prayer, but through their membership in the church, actualized in the Eucharist, they are alive and pray and offer and receive with us. The church is in the bishop and the bishop is in the church. St. Cyprian of Carthage says, and when we pray for the bishop, we pray for the real welfare of the church. Actually, that paragraph is missing a bit, so don't worry about that. But what's he saying? Look at this again. The departed members of the church are not objects of our prayer, but through their membership in the church, actualized in the Eucharist, as in we're all one church, one body. So when we have communion, we're one church with those people that have, are having, and will ever have communion. We're one church, right? They are alive and pray and offer and receive, um, and receive with us. They're there. We're, all, we're, we're in heaven. We're all together. And the same way that we could say, Mary, pray for me. She says, okay, I'll pray for you. Why do we pray? Out of love. The same way we pray for those who have departed. That's a good question. We're going to get to that in a second. Okay. All right. I think this is important, so I'm just going to keep reading. <laughs> okay. I've got like 10 minutes to go. All right. I want to tell Dusmanati. I'll just read bits and pieces. Okay. Line one, two, three, four, at the end. It is a divine mystery of the one ecclesia, the one church, that is, of the triumphant, those in heaven, and militant members, us on earth. For the triumphant ones who departed from earth did not leave the church. Their love to their brethren, who are militant, did not cease by their departure and dwelling in paradise. The death of bodies never separates the faithful from the church, nor does it sever the bond of mutual love. The community which, as Christians, we belong to, is not limited only to the world we see around us. It extends across time as well as space, embracing the departed ones along with the living. In God and in His Church, there can be no division between the living and the dead. For both are one in the love of the Father. Christians, whether they are alive or not, as members of God's Church, still belong to one and the same family. Yes. Alive or not, they still belong to one Church. They are still members, belonging to each each other and are called to bear each other's burdens. The Church, a reality both visible and invisible, encompasses within herself earth and heaven, the living, the departed and saints, men and angels, joining them all in one body. This is beautiful, right? If you ask me, this makes when people pass away, this makes their separation from us a lot more hopeful, right? St. Macarius the Great says, There is no other way to be saved except through our neighbor. We can't practice our salvation outside the other members of the church. This whole, like, it's nice to focus on one spiritual life, but it's not about my salvation. It's about our salvation. Yeah? We cannot cease from praying for others, for we love them and are one with them. 
We pray for others. This is a monetary responsibility. We pray for others while they're alive. Why should we not continue to pray for them after their death? Is it because they cease to exist that we should cease to pray for them? Perhaps we do not know precisely how much these prayers are useful for the dead. But we still go praying for the loving mercy of God to be upon them. Why do we pray for them? Out of love. That's it. Next, John of Kronstadt is a Russian father. When you pray for the repose of the soul of the departed, force yourself to pray with your whole heart, remembering that you do, to do so is your essential duty, and not only that of a priest or ecclesiastic person. Our prayer of faith and love for the departed means much more means much in the Lord's sight. Father Athanasius, someone may object that prayer for the departed will not benefit them. But we have biblical precedent for this in the second letter to Timothy, where St. Paul prays for his departed friend Onesiphorus, that the Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day. The church believes that as long as that day, judgment day, has not come yet, there is always hope that our supplication may benefit the departed. His father does this The whole idea of praying on behalf of the departed and asking them to pray on our behalf is underscoring the fact that the church militant on earth and the church victorious in heaven are one. So the loved ones that have went before us are with us together in the body of Christ. It's a bit of a rabbit hole here, but time is not linear for God, right? So whether our prayers happen before the person, we could essentially miss any time. Yep. And we pray for people who are alive all the time, hoping that you know, they can That's very nice. I like that. Very nice. But I think what Paul's trying to say is that we're we're looking at it like that I can, in our in our mind. So if I've prayed, if I'm if I'm praying for if I've prayed for someone. God will accept that prayer, but God is beyond time. Yeah. No, no, it's not. It's not too late because. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're also praying for them simply out of love. Yeah. Yeah. Well, God has mercy on them. We're all praying for mercy. On Judgment Day. Let's not turn... Yeah. We're praying out of love for them that God may have mercy on them. How that works with God... Let me ask you another way. How does one... Actually, we'll get to this in a second and then we'll come back to that. Where we, answer, we could answer the question, how does one's prayer for people that are alive work? What's the dynamics of that? Yeah? We'll, we'll get to that one in a second. So the fact that we're praying for those who have passed before us emphasizes the point that we are one church. If we didn't pray for them, then you could say there's one church on earth, it's called the Militant Church, and there's another church in heaven, they're called Victoria Church. They're two churches that have nothing to do with each other. right? But the fact that we pray for them emphasizes the fact that we are one church. St. Cyril of Jerusalem, 4th century. And I want to convince you by an illustration, for I know that many say, what does it avail a soul departed this world, whether with or without sin, to be remembered of the oblation? So in the offering, like in the oblation, if you remember someone departed. Well, suppose a king banished persons who had offended him, and then their relatives wove a garland and presented it to him on behalf of those undergoing punishment. Would he not mitigate their punishment? In the same way, when we offer our supplications to him, for those who have fallen asleep, even though they are sinners, we do not weave a garland, but offer Christ slain for our sins, propitiating to win or gain favor, the merciful God, both on their and our own behalf. Okay, what's next on your sheet? Okay, very nice. This is, this is a bit long, but I think this is an important point, and their words are much better than anything I could put together. All right. 
The fellowship between us and them, living and dead, is not a psychic, it's not on the psychic, but on the spiritual level. And the place of our meeting is not the seance parlor, but the Eucharistic table. The only legitimate foundation for our fellowship with the dead is communion in prayer. Above all, at the celebration of the Divine Liturgy, we pray for them, and at the same time, we are confident they are praying for us. And it is through this mutual intercession that we and they are joined across the boundary of death in a firm and unbroken bond of unity. Okay? It's for time. Second half of this paragraph. We do not pray for them because God will otherwise neglect them. We pray for them because we know that He loves and cares for them. And we claim the privilege of uniting our love for them with God's. No further explanation or defense of prayer for the departed is necessary or indeed possible. Such prayer is simply the spontaneous expression of our love for each other. Here on earth, we pray for, for others. Should we not continue to pray for them after their death? Have they ceased to exist? That we should cease to make indecision for them? Whether alive or dead, we are all members of the same family. And so, whether alive or dead, we intercede for each other. In the risen Christ, there is no separation between the dead and the living. We are all alive in Him, for in Him there is no death. Physical death cannot sever the bonds of mutual love and mutual prayer that unites us all to one another in a single body. Last paragraph. Of course, we do not understand exactly how such prayer benefits the departed. Yet equally, when we intercede for people still alive, we cannot explain how this intercession assists them. We know from our personal experience that praying for others is effective and so we continue to practice it. But whether offered for the living or for the dead, such prayer works in a way that remains mysterious. We are unable to fathom the precise interaction between 1. The act of prayer 2. The free will of the other person 3. God's grace and foreknowledge Repeat that. We are unable to fathom the precise interaction between 1. The act of prayer. Two, the free will of the other person. Three, God's grace and foreknowledge. When we pray for the departed, it is enough for us to know that they are still growing in their love for God and so need our support. Let us leave the rest to God.